everyone. Welcome back to the Earth Dawn Survival Guide, a podcast for novices, masters, everyone of all disciplines, paths, players, game masters, and casual fans, diehard enthusiasts, and the rest of us. I am, of course, Dan. My co-host is, of course, Josh. Hello, everybody. And you may not realize this, but we are back for the third time. Technical difficulties notwithstanding, this is take two on the same podcast because everything we talked about previously was wiped out. So we're here to do it again just because we love you. It was a dress rehearsal. Uh, if you have any – yeah. If you have any questions for us, please feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com because on today's podcast, we'll be discussing things – I can't even remember the words I pulled up last night for it. So there we are. Uh, I've lost them all. <laughs> I think this is ethnocentrical. Something like that. We're going to talk about interaction tests today. Attitudes and all of that fun stuff. Yes. So, yeah. We'll get in the swing of things here in just a second so I can figure out where I left my notes. Yeah, because we lost an hour of recording and yeah, decided, well, we're done tonight. And because hour. I'm on vacation as we are recording this, hey, we can get together during the day to record an episode. Exactly. And so we just kind of got some sleep and <laughs> we are back here in round two again in round two. I want to start off as he's looking for his notes by addressing yeah, the you're good. OK, that's fine. I'm, I'm going to yeah. open the same way regardless. Let's do it. Kind of referring back to the comments that I made numerous episodes ago um, about mechanics when it comes to social stuff. The reluctance yes. that people have to bring mechanics into it when you're dealing with social interactions and the role playing that is typically expected to go along with it. While there isn't any real objection to people using the dice and mechanics to resolve physical interactions with the setting, whether that be conflict or climbing a wall or disarming a trap or anything along those lines. And quite often the dice being used in sort of investigative capacity through awareness tests and other things like that. When it comes to social interactions, that is persuading other characters to do things, NPCs and whatnot, there, there tends to be a reluctance to do that. Well, why would we need mechanics when we can just sit at the table and, and talk back and forth? And I talked back in that rant, you know, again, multiple episodes ago at this point about how the, the potential that that could be a problem for somebody who is naturally well-spoken and glib and able to come up with good words on the spur of the moment and knows the game master and the types of things that would persuade them and leverages that as an advantage to overcome maybe a lower charisma step or things like that, that, that would, per, that you're persuading the game master, that the player is trying to persuade the game master and not the character trying to persuade the NPC. And I am not a hardcore, like, oh no, you need to use the rules for everything. And I think that the mm -hmm. mechanics for game master character attitudes and interaction tests in Earth Dawn, which are largely unchanged in 4th edition from back in the 1st edition days, do provide a good, solid framework around which you can bring a little bit more interaction and mechanics into your, your social sets, uh, situations that you might have. Yeah, so it, it sounds like, just as a start for the, the players who are new to this and the game masters who haven't maybe used this as frequently as uh, you have or as I have, because I've not used this very frequently, but I'm going to begin to lean on this a little, a little bit more, that we're supplementing the R-O-L-E playing that some people may be good at and some people may not be good at and enhancing that with a small framework of R-O-L-L playing mechanics to back all right. that up so we can at least have yeah. a place to start. Especially so, in Earthdawn uh, where that, you've got – well, especially in Earthdawn where you've got some disciplines that are really kind more of social. focused on – Yeah, that are more social. The troubadour, the weaponsmith, the swordmaster, um, the thief to a certain extent if you're building them to be more sort of a con artist as opposed to a, a, a treasure hunter. Yeah. So, you know, these are characters that are built and have abilities that leverage and play with this system – and mm -hmm. so therefore not using it is downplaying the um and and shorting those it's those character concepts. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. I started my my uh, role playing career with Shadowrun which did not have a lot of social support mechanics, but I didn't like D&D &D 
because it didn't have this. And so my my greatest benefit that I, I came across and of the myriad things I love about Earth Dawn, you know, 97,000 things I love about it, is that it had an inherent built-in social defense. And it's just as important as physical defense. It's equally as important as mystic defense because social defense, you know, things can affect what you do. Your horror powers can affect your social defense and spells can affect your social defense. And they will change what your character is supposed to be doing. And I found that equally as important. And I love the fact that the social defense is the third thing you're building when you create your character. You got physical, spell, and social. Done. That's it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's everything about Earthon, uh, especially the rule of three, is built into take advantage of or, or play off of those three defense mechanisms. And so I like that uh, Earth Dawn had it. And last night we discussed the creation for it in the early 90s because in D&D, the original box sets in the AD&D campaign, the interactions that they had somewhat built in were kind of on the wane. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, old school, first edition AD&D and the old basic Dungeons and Dragons sets did have reaction roles and morale. The reaction roles were largely modified you know, when you encounter a group of orcs in a cave, there was a, re- a reaction role that would happen that would be modified by a character's intelligence. Our intelligence would be modified by their charisma <laughs> to determine, you know, how the orcs would react. It was not a case of, oh, you walk into the room with the orcs, they immediately attack, boom, we break into combat. And charisma was also kind of important in, in AD&D as it had stuff that determined how many hirelings and henchmen that you could have. And that hmm. was an aspect of the, the play in those days that it was less we're focused just on the three or four or five prime player characters, but they would have an entourage, they would have a baggage train, they would have other people that, that would come along and potentially help them out. Um, that the explorations of dungeons or ruins or things like that would be a, a much more based around, in some respects, real life exploration, you know, where if you have an archaeological dig that's going out, you know, to to look through ruins or or whatever, it would not just be two mm-hmm. or three people like the the Indiana Jones idea yeah. of archaeology is really not how that works. And you have this whole this whole support <laughs> as fun as it is that pulp adventure thing. Yeah, that's not really how it works. And, and there is some nod in some respects to realism with regards that you would have a baggage train and support people taking care of the animals, maybe some mercenaries that would be along with you to help the fighting and whatnot. But as second edition continued uh, and whatnot, and the shift from the tabletop war game miniatures design style and aesthetic that marked the really early days and shifted to a more, we are trying Mm -hmm. to model the adventure fiction the fantasy fiction that we read, um, whether that be, you know, Lord of the Rings and everything that spawned it, you know, in, in the wake where, or in film or television, where you really are focusing on yeah. like a core group of protagonists and you don't tend to deal with all of the logistical realities that would go along with somebody taking a, a you know, multi-week long jaunt into the unknown. And so, yeah. yeah and so, you can see that, especially in the shift from second edition in the TSR era to third edition with Wizards of the Coast, where while there mm-hmm. are skills in D&D third that, you know, you've got negotiate, you've got, I don't even remember what they are offhand, but you've got a diplomacy, you've got some skills that are social, the yeah. focus and the, the mechanics tended to be focused more on combat situations and the tactical play that came about as a result of that simply because that was what people were kind of looking for out of D&D, at least mm-hmm. according to, you know, the information that was available. Um, but you see in the 90s a, a growing trend of, you know, not just in Earthon, but in the World of Darkness games, you know, Vampire and Werewolf and those had a lot more, Vampire especially, yeah. had a lot more focus on the politicking and social interactions of the court and the various powers that were involved. They did have, of course phenomenal combat powers that they would use to to beat each other up or beat up bad guys. But there was also a, a strong yeah. social, especially in the LARP area. Yeah. As well, game. especially in the LARP arena where you yes. would, where you would have people live action mm-hmm. and a lot of the interactions that would go on there 
And if you look into the sort of indie small press design space in the last 10, 15 years or so, you start seeing games like Monster Hearts and things like that, where a large part of the game is focused around relationships and social interactions and things like that. So it is definitely something that is in there. And having mechanics for it, obviously, you know, different style of play might lean towards greater or lesser use of that. But I think that having a social system to whatever degree you are, you have in your game, and this is true for Earth Dawn, unloads a little bit of mm-hmm. the of the prep and thought work that it is required for a GM to run the game because you determine a, you can determine a couple of things about the, the NPC um, and then allow to a certain extent, the abilities of the player characters and the yeah. dice rolls to determine how that plays out and is resolved. Yeah. Uh, so let's just go ahead and dive into the actual mechanics. Uh, I think it's, yeah. I, I can't say that's enough prep, but I think we've kind of laid the groundwork for where we're going with this as far as the Earth Dawn rules are concerned in fourth edition. Uh, and as you said, they didn't change a whole lot, if at all, from previous editions or first edition, but everybody nope. starts off with an attitude. And that's not a right. bad thing. It's just <laughs> – and there's there, it's a sliding scale. There's seven attitudes. There's three positive, three negative, and one neutral in the middle. And it can go either go up and down. And it's not like there's 15 to keep track of. It's just a simple three up, three down, kind of the rule of three again for Earth Dawn. You've got your physical defense, social defense, and mystic defense. That's three. And you've got three positive attitudes, which are starting way at the top. Actually, let's just do this. Let's start with neutral. And Mm -hmm. up or down, you can go friendly or unfriendly. And then higher than that, you can go loyal or hostile. And then at the Mm -hmm. top of each list, you've got – No, loyal. It's it's friendly or unfriendly. Yeah. Loyal. Did you already say that? I. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's our third time through this. <laughs> so let's loyal. just go top. Yeah, loyal yeah. versus hostile. And then at the top is awestruck and at the bottom is enemy. So you've got that sliding scale there. So, and really it's, it's, that's it. If you get like extra successes on whatever you're doing and let's just start off with something simple. Like, I mean, first impression is one thing I, that immediately comes to mind as a talent you can use. I was just looking at things like haggle because mm-hmm. In previous games where there was not a social construct like this or for the rules to help you out with any kind of interaction, just haggling for prices was a pain in the rear because you either had to accept it or, you know, you didn't necessarily want to beat the the, uh, the shop owner and take his stuff and steal it because that's not maybe the character you are. <laughs> and that leads to other complications down the road. But those these rules were in other games that I found. And so I was like, this is just mm-hmm. help me along a little bit in the social aspect, because maybe perhaps I'm not as extroverted as some of the players are, or I'm not as knowledgeable as some of the players are help some of the newbies along a little bit. Let's give them some rules to kind of give them the construct of this is kind of how an interaction should work. And then right. maybe after they get the hang of it, they can just ad lib and actual R O L E play after this. But initially speaking, you know, let's not try and destroy every merchant in town and take all their stuff. <laughs> not all the right. time. Nine times out of ten, anybody that you meet is going to be having a neutral attitude towards you to start with. And let's make this quite clear for all the players out there. This is not for player on player interactions because that should mostly be R-O-L-E played. Right. Yeah. This is mostly unless you're yeah, yeah unless you're dealing with stuff that actually has mechanical interactions. Like for some reason you are using taunt on yes. another player character. Yeah. But generally speaking, these these interaction tests and whatnot are. Designed. I mean, you can certainly use them as a as a basis for your your interparty mm-hmm. relationships and whatnot. If there's a conflict um, or you want to have fun, but for the most <laughs> part, these should be used to help navigate and resolve player character versus NPC relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll get into the other ones a little bit later on, but mostly 99 times out of a hundred NPC interactions. So this is not right. for you to convince your cohort <clears throat> to go along with your really bad plan when they really don't want to go along with your really bad plan. This is to, these are for players to interact with game master characters. And we can start off with the neutral where everybody kind of tends to go with. And Mm -hmm. if you are rolling to support your role playing, then you really only need to get a couple of successes above their social defense on whatever you're doing, always based on your charisma. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you roll your charisma versus their social defense. If you get an extra success, perhaps you move it up one st- one level. If you get two, you move it up two levels and three. Congratulations. Yeah, that's n- that's not actually even the most potent attitude adjustment talent, mm-hmm. which is first impression. Yeah. You can't shift somebody more than two levels on one interaction and on on a single interaction. Yeah. And and doing anything more than that takes time. You know, it requires three successes or basically beating the the target social defense by 10 mm-hmm. in order to shift them two levels with the talent first impression, which would make somebody who is neutral to you to start up to loyal. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are suddenly a, a great friend. Really, that, that those levels indicate sort of generally how well disposed they are towards you and set the benchmarks for favors, which we'll get in a little bit later, but which I see as sort of the biggest and most overlooked component of the interaction test system. Yeah. I, I kind of treat it like, an, like a customer service interaction at the deli counter. <laughs> You're not going to be overnight best friends with somebody, you know, take them home and feed them dinner. This is, hey, I had a really good interaction with you. I'll remember you from next time, you know, type of thing. Right. But the point I was going to make is I am appreciating the very small scale and the very small number of interaction tests you can actually make because I've run a lot of, of the previous uh, published adventures and there's not a whole lot of these in those. And so yeah. this is, I can't say coming out of left field, but this is getting revitalized in the fourth edition because the pamphlets you've put out about the Parlinth adventures. Yep, the Legends of Bar Save Legends of Bar stuff. Save stuff is beginning to refocus on this a little bit. So if you don't have those, pick them up. If you do have those, congratulations. It's a, it's a wonderful little yeah. set. That's, that's one of the things that when it comes to published adventures, that they – are not just something for game masters to grab and run when they are looking for something to, to do for their group for a session yeah. or whatever. Um, but they also provide a template and examples for how we think that typical adventures should be designed and how challenges are scaled and things like that. And yeah. so in one of the adventures, there's a bit where the player characters are looking for information on somebody and they go to a halfway house and are talking to the people in sort of hanging out there. And the text says they start off with this level of attitude mm-hmm. and getting them to reveal X piece of information is considered a favor. And so that basically sets the framework for which you can then start bringing in talents like first impression or conversation or things like that to manipulate their attitude level to make it easier or harder for you to then get that favor out of them. Yeah. I like that it's being a new attention and focus has been put on the social aspect of Earth Dawn because it is equal. It just hasn't been as highlighted in the past. Mm-hmm. published adventures as, as well. So, And it's one of the areas of my game mastering experience I needed to focus more on because I'm encouraging people to R-O-L-E play more. I just need to make sure that I've got a framework underneath all that to help out. Right. Because I'm running a Beastmaster and we'll get to the interactions with animals a little bit later in the episode. So don't fast forward just yet. We are... <laughs> so we've covered the seven levels of interaction Awestruck, loyal, friendly, attitude, neutral. Yeah. yeah, the attitudes. Unfriendly, hostile, and enemy. And now you get to actually figure out what your characters are going to do when you get when they interact with these characters. And starting that off is one of the five, making an impression, which as we've said mm-hmm. is kind of the opening salvo or the opening volley on maybe it's your pickup line, maybe it's your greeting, maybe it's, it's one of those things. Yeah. Occasionally etiquette might come into play because you might need to be talking to an orc and you have to know which way to spit for respect or disrespect, or you don't want to be too flowery in, in your speech with a dwarf. Just get right to the point. Maybe you need to be more flowery in your speech talking to an elf. Who knows? But this is making an impression. And of course, first impression is the best talent to use here. Right. Yeah. Because the talent first impression allows you to do more potentially. The The basic making an impression test is not based on the... Like, there's no real degree of success in this. It's, yeah. uh, you know, if you succeed, it improves by one, even if you happened to roll really, really well on your charisma test. Yeah. These are the ones that are sort of like 
for lack of a better term, like default skills is that anybody can do these. There just happen to be talents that or skills that are enhanced and allow you to to do more. Yeah. The only detriment is, of course, the rule of one does come into play where you'll absolutely potentially <laughs> potentially knock somebody down uh, a peg on the whole I like you attitude list. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Depends on the words you use, I guess. I, I would say that that is something that I would be a little bit cautious about game masters abusing, mm-hmm. especially if you've got characters that are not really charisma based. Yes. Because if they're not socially based and don't have skills or talents to enhance that and they're rolling straight charisma, mm-hmm. you get rule of one, you get one results on a single die a lot more often than you do on any of the, the multi-die steps. Yes. So that's something that I would only encourage if it makes things more interesting rather than, you know, because basically nothing is worse than encouraging your players to try something. And then have it fail and result in bad things, and therefore they stop trying it. Yeah. So only if it's deadly, don't encourage that. <laughs> well, not even, not even, not even deadly. But if you want to kind of use these mechanics mm-hmm. to help guide your, uh, your the the social aspect of your game, then you're going to want to not punish them for using it. Agreed. So. And and being over reliant on the rule of one, I am generally not a huge fan of rule of one critical failures. Even when you're looking at multiple dice and stuff like that, the the failure itself is usually enough. You don't need to impose anything kind of worse on top of it. Yeah, my my usual rule of ones in social interactions lead to the bar fights, but yeah, <laughs> we pivot from social social mechanics to physical mechanics real quick. Right. <laughs> you know, and that is and that is certainly a, a possibility. You know, just just in general, a, a philosophy that I have of not having any kind of test, but interaction tests in particular, mm-hmm. like close off an avenue of approach. Yeah. Maybe requiring you to take a, a different avenue or complicating things in an interesting way rather than simply, oh, you rolled poorly on your impression test and now he doesn't like you. So the only way you're going to get what you want is to you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that that's true for investigations mm-hmm. and things like yeah. that. It should, it should, yeah, the rule of one should complicate matters. It shouldn't shut them all down. Right. Yeah. Making an impression, of course, is the, is the first one, best one. And you got to have some emphasis on that, but then comes the fun, tricky ones. And these two, these right. next two are kind of intertwined. You have deceit, which is broken down into either exaggeration, fabrication, or half truths. Exaggeration being the one where you are stretching details, usually for the greater, but you can downplay stuff as well mm-hmm. uh, using exaggeration if, if you want to do that. Fabrication is basically outright falsehood. And then half-truths is when you are not – you are withholding information. Mm-hmm. And the result of the test in that case is basically – indicates whether the target of that is suspicious or has reason to not believe what you are saying. Yeah. All of these are good, but this is for when the player characters are interacting with the game master character and they are intentionally deceiving the game master NPCs. Right. Giving giving the guard a different reason for why you're hanging out in outside that um that warehouse. Exactly. Or there's you know, trying to <laughs> you know, that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, half-truths or fabrications or whatever might be going on there. And then the flip side of deceit is... When the Game Master character is trying insight. to deceive the player characters, because they don't really want to reveal all this information, and the characters would end up rolling the insight test. So the Game Master characters wouldn't necessarily be rolling anything here. Yeah, the, the way that the way that things are, are described in the sort of with the footnotes in the interaction success table, which is on page 148 of the Game Master's Guide, yep. um, does talk about if you are being deceived, then the character needs to roll more successes on the interaction test. And maybe if it is a higher stakes situation or a more important aspect of it, you may want to have each character make a, a respective insight and deceit check based on who's doing what. Mm-hmm. But that, like, if you're going with a, a more 
um, straightforward thing. It's perfectly all right to just have the player character make the role to see whether they successfully deceive or whether they successfully can kind of sense that deception that that the deception is is taking place. Yeah, you know, and that's something that comes with experience in game mastering in general and knowing, you know, getting a sense for for what you want to do. Yeah, so it just it take some of the uh, the dice rolling out of the game master's hands you've got enough to keep track of as it is let the player yep. characters do all, all of those and 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 one thing that you can do i think and it's not really covered in these rules at all and this is a case where i have been working kind of in the back of my mind for an expansion or reworking of the social mechanics yeah. the, the interaction tests and and whatnot to like as it's written right now that these interactions we're talking about, deceit and insight and intimidation, which we'll get to in a moment, mm-hmm. are all not modified in any way by the respective attitude level of the of the game master character. It is not yeah. any more difficult to deceive someone who is hostile to you than it is someone who is awestruck or friendly yeah. or whatever. And I think that mm-hmm. it is acceptable. I'm not. I haven't completely thought through numbers wise how it might all play out, but it would make sense if, if by, you know, trying to deceive somebody who is more suspicious of you, having an unfriendly or a hostile attitude towards you would require you to either roll higher or score more successes or however you want to do that in, yeah. in terms of, of the, those interactions. Yeah. I can see that that would require a modifier of some kind. It would just make kind of a, a little rubric table on your sliding scale of X, Y, and Z. Right. So I played a, a game 25 years ago that had a massive, it had alignments, you know, three positive, three heroic, three neutral, and three evil. And based upon your interaction tests with them, there was a whole 10, it was a 10 box by 10 box chart. So it was a hundred different squares on your percentage of, of chance of uh, accomplishing persuasion of some kind. And I was just like, oh, that's just cumbersome. <laughs> So to begin with, this system is as nothing ever is, is not perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's at least a nice place to start. Right. And in the back of Josh's mind, he'll work on the uh, enhancement later on. (laughs) So mentioned intimidation. This is the one where rather than being charming and outgoing, you are using threats. It is generally the one that is more effective against unfriendly or hostile people. Using it against people, using intimidation against people who are friendly to you is generally a really good way to make them unfriendly towards you. Yeah, that's not a good thing. And so you've got sort of two basic (laughs) ways that that you can use intimidation. One is do nothing, basically get somebody to stop what is happening, you know, leave her alone, you know, and whatnot. Um, And then there's forcing an action, which is where you are trying to get somebody to do something that they would not uh, otherwise do. Yeah. And this is still charisma based, you know, the, the, and, and so then the reason for that is that it's selling the intimidation, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, a burly troll or orc or obsidian man who is taking this approach is probably going to be more convincing than someone who is yeah. not. Yeah. But, you know, you get somebody like Teresia, the, the windling right hand of Garlthic, who is known to mm-hmm. be murderous. Um, and will, you know, who is, you know, 16 inches, 18 inches, you know, tall. 18 inches yeah. tall, but can very compellingly convey the fact that she will stab you in the bowels if you do not do what she says. Yes. You know, then, and so there is definitely a charisma aspect of that there. And, you know, again, certainly you can, um, you get things like impressive display, which we've talked about a couple of times with some disciplines where you can use another ability mm-hmm. to, give the indication uh, of what's going on. Yeah. So on occasion, you can use intimidation interaction tests to not use charisma, maybe use a talent. I've had some trouble with this in the past because my, the group that I've run for 20 years or so is two orcs, a troll and on occasion an obsidian. So to your point, they've used intimidation in the past a little bit, and I've not been relying on these rules as far as in starting attitude and their interactions and so forth, but I need to rely on these a little bit more just because the mechanics will support the role-playing, and that's all there is. So 
yeah, I've, I've <laughs> and, and, had, had troubles with intimidating and that's, people And that's before. one of the, the things that I would encourage when it comes to using social mechanics, and that is it's not a one-way street. It's not the mechanics force the role-playing. It is yes. like the like when you first open up the scene and the player character makes an impression, whether using the talent or just the normal interaction test on the NPC, mm-hmm. the result yeah. of that should then guide the game master in terms of how that character is going to, to react to what the player characters are saying and, and whatnot. But yeah. at the same time, if the player characters are doing something or trying something um, that would potentially influence that attitude or position, then you can fall back to having the mechanics. Well, how is the NPC going to react to this change of approach or to this sort of thing? And so, I mean, the the example, yeah. the only real example of play in, in the books is the two-page example interaction test, <laughs> which kind of describes in a little bit, the on page 152, 153, kind yeah, of describes 20. the way that I tend to approach it, yeah. maybe formalized a little bit more than I would like right at the table. But it's it's a case of looking at, okay, they do some role playing. And I just, you know, some things just happen, some things are going to require tests, and just kind of going on, mm-hmm. going on from there. Yeah, it had to be formalized a little bit, you had to write it down. So yeah, well, right. <laughs> There was that. But then we get into then we get into favors. Yeah, our fifth and final. Which is really Yeah. Which is really where I think the the bulk of the social mechanics play really in Earthstone really like sort of comes into its it own. It shines here. Yeah. Which is to say that people who are more favorably disposed towards you are more likely to do things mm-hmm. for you, but it's not a one way street. And really what you need to do when you're talking about interactions, whether you are questioning somebody trying to get information, whether you're trying to get them to do a favor, an actual favor for you or something along those lines, and you don't even necessarily need to roll, but you can use success levels, the required number of successes for the various attitudes to, you know, provide favors as, as the guideline. Yeah, because this also allows the additional kind of like mini tiny mini tiny uh small branches of adventures you can kind of have a little sideline over here and there to cause more interactions with other npcs and so forth and since there's only making an impression deceit insight intimidation and favors there's not a lot really that the game master has to worry about so when you're preparing your adventure or for me now if i grab one of my pregens i'm going to start working these things in it's not a cumbersome amount of work to shoehorn these in all of a sudden just to go, oh, okay, I have an NPC. He's going to start mm-hmm. off at this level of, of attitude toward the characters when they approach him or he approaches them, take your pick. And all I need to figure out is, okay, my team likes to intimidate a lot or my team wants to really trade off of favors back and forth and just prepare which interaction of the five, there's not a lot, you can count them on one hand, that they're going to try and mostly go for. But that's, I mean, it's not too hard to shoehorn all these things in. And it's, and it's and not even, and it's not even really shoehorning. It's just a little bit of additional prep that takes maybe another minute or two to just think about yeah, this sort of situation. It's two steps. And it's not all reliant on, on the, the favor roles, on the interaction tests that result whether they'll do it or not. Because there's an economy yeah. of favors. I think if the player characters are offering a small favor on their behalf, you can count that as an extra, as an automatic mm-hmm. success or an extra success in terms of what they're trying to get the, the, the NPC to do. And yeah. it's just largely a matter of, you know, and perhaps trying to be somewhat consistent or at least basing it on the, the personality of the NPC. Like, what would they consider to be a small favor from a fifth circle adept as opposed to, you know, and, and, and what? Yeah. Yeah, um, and that sort of thing. A merchant. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of, because you brought up the example last night, and I was thinking of it at the same time, which is Charboya in the Infected Adventure. Right. I've run that one, and it just helps inform, because you, you talked about favors last night with what Charboya is asking you to do. And in the in the book right here, uh, a favor shouldn't take, what, more than eight hours or so? committed time a large yeah a large large favor favor. generally you know a small favor it shouldn't take more than about 30 minutes of time or effort to perform a large favor is generally considered like uh uh, an eight hours and 
obviously you could in theory like spider web out this whole kind of thing well it's like okay a large favor is eight hours of time and like try to sort of base some kind of realistic or consistent economy on top of that i think that's a lot more work than is really worthwhile but that could be you know one aspect of looking at well charboya is asking the characters to do to journey to this town, which is multiple days of travel away, the amount that he would be offering in terms of a payment of that should be equivalent to if it's a if it's a one week trip, that should yeah. be the equivalent of seven. Like if a large favor is considered a days of work, a day of work, mm-hmm. then a week long yeah. trip should have the value equivalent, roughly speaking, of seven yeah. large favors, which is you know like. You can sort of start to to build on that, and you don't need to necessarily have like interaction tests for every step or all those kinds no. of things. But that the the payment, the money, the bribe to to use yeah. a slightly different term there that is being <laughs> offered to the group in order to undertake this task for him should mm-hmm. be they should see it as an equivalent value of their time and effort to do it. Yeah. You know, and again, not necessarily even needing to, because this is the premise of the adventure. We don't want a fluke die roll to derail that whole thing, but kind yeah. of looking at, at things in, in that regard. Um, there is something that, that I did not bring up when we were talking last night, but I remembered it today. Uh, and it's not in the fourth <laughs> edition book, but there's a whole section in one of the first edition supplements. And I can't mm-hmm. now remember, I haven't gone to look at where it actually is, but it talks about like followers and whatnot and how you build up a relationship with an NPC to make them, you know, beyond just the simple interaction, but how you build up a relationship with them to be a long-term friend and ally. I want to say that's in the first edition companion. It's it's either in that or it's in the GM's book for the, for the, either the bar safe set or part of the GM screen. Like those, those yeah. have these like really nice little game master mm-hmm. useful stuff, but they yeah. never got a lot of attention. And because of where they were, they don't get looked at a lot. And so it's in like yeah, one it, of those. And I'll put, yeah. I'll look it up when I'm writing up the show notes and, and make a note in there of yeah. what it is. Exactly. But that's, that's another aspect that is not in the fourth edition GM guide that I, because it wasn't in the interaction test that was part of the third edition book which is kind of what I was basing the fourth edition layout and flow on that that never carried over. But again, it's like looking at these pieces and going, how can we leverage this to be something that is useful for GMs to help guide what happens? And the interaction Mm -hmm. tests and favors and attitudes are not mind control. They're not going to prevent somebody from doing something that they are generally speaking, not inclined to do in the first place. Like for example, dealing with Vardigal. Vardigal. In Haven. Um, we yeah. talked about this last night, though, of course, nobody is hearing that. We're doing it for our own benefit. Because um, there was, was a question, own, there was a question that came yeah. up on the Discord with regards to, well, I've got a, you know, journeyman tier troubadour who walks into Vardigal's shop, rolls really well on a first impression test, and has some other stuff that they do that Vardigal is, lo- is considered loyal, like... Mm-hmm. Okay, but Vardigal is not like they're looking for information um, from Vardigal to help further this thing. Well, Vardigal has a reputation, has, you know, as kind of a core conceit of her character that she doesn't give anything away for free. And there are yes. ways that you can work around that. It might be that because she is considered loyal, it might be easy easier for them to work out a deal with them that is not necessarily as favorable as a it favor might otherwise exchange. be if she were not as well disposed towards them. But she is not going to just give away anything for free. And a lot of the difficulty uh, in in that discussion on there was initially the context and everything else that was going on around that interaction was not like changes the the changes the interaction and and how you would resolve that. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, yes, we will owe you here is a token, whatever, for you to maybe indicate that this item on your price list is the one that we need to pay you for in order to get the information that we need. Like working with, which is a very different interaction than coming in and saying, hey, we need you to tell us what, tell us the information that we need. She's not going to do that, but maybe 
you know, it, it's, it's not mind control. It's not gonna, generally speaking, prevent somebody from doing yeah. it. It just might make it a little bit easier or harder to work that favor economy. What are we going to give you in exchange? In a lot of cases with Vertical, that is coin. Yeah. <laughs> Almost and, every time. And what, that's what, and what is the value of what the NPC feels that they are giving up or offering in exchange, and some of that might have to deal with their with their reputation. Mm -hmm. Vardigal, you know, when it comes to stuff that involves her reputation in Haven as being a uh, a hard ass when it comes to you know getting paid for her stuff, might consider it more yeah, significant to you know do stuff that might compromise that reputation, even though it might be relatively speaking a small financial. It might only be a ten silver piece fee required. To do that, but the cost to her reputation yeah. that, oh, if I do this for you, then everybody with a sob story about some unconscious boy yeah. will come in and expecting me to do the same thing. And I can't have that because long term, that's bad for my business. Even if I yeah. even if I like you and I sympathize with the situation that you are presenting me. I just met you. So <laughs> that's vertical thing. I just met you and I'll see a thousand of you in the next year. It doesn't matter right. what your sob story is. So the initial attitude that the game master like myself has to prepare for also helps inform the game master's role playing as well because you get to do a little role playing as all the parts as all the rest of the parts in the story and so if you automatically start off with no matter what the character i'm the character i'm going to present to the gate to the group right now starts off with an unfriendly attitude that's it mm -hmm. and if you make a, an absolute determination no matter what they do i can only move up to friendly that's it Period. End of story. Because I have a reputation to uphold. I have a position. I have secrets I need to keep or whatever the case may be. And things like well, that. It's like uh, – I, well, I was going to say that magic can overcome that. But the 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 mm – -hmm. you know, like if you roll really, really well on your first impression, the magic is going to influence and at least short term make it easier for – you to maybe get what you want short term out of that character, but that doesn't last forever. And if you do nope. not reciprocate with favors to back to them, then yeah. mm -hmm. they are going to like that attitude, that feeling towards you is going to lessen. And there is perhaps no more assured way to get somebody to dislike you than to continue getting favor. I mean, Come on, everybody knows has stories in their own life of people who just take and take and take and are you're constantly doing favors for them and they never see, yeah. you know, like you help them move or you like do all of these various things. And when the time mm -hmm. comes for you to ask them for help, they ghost you or whatever. And it yes. does not take yeah. a whole lot of that for that to, to burn the relationship. And to make it be, well, mm -hmm. I am less inclined to do you, you Anything know, a else. big favor yeah. because you are not reciprocating that relationship. Clearly, I was your friend. You were not mine. And so that disincentivizes me to help you from now on. And eventually those lessons will be learned. Yep. And one of the things that you will want to do as a game master, if you are having recurring NPCs in the game, mm, is to... Keep track either in a, a journal or a spreadsheet online or wherever it is that you keep your campaign notes mm -hmm. and to have the, the character, you know, the NPC's name, the attitude that they have towards the game master, yeah. towards the player characters and what kind of, of favors have recently been done or have been done and not received in kind. So that even if it's six months later in game time, mm -hmm. Or even a year later in real time, however much campaign time might have passed in, in that, you can go yeah. back to that and say, oh, okay, in game, they have not seen this character for three weeks. They did a large favor for them, have not really gotten anything back in return. It is going to be more difficult, you know, they might go to the player characters and say, hey, you did this thing for me. I need help. Can you... You know, and the mm -hmm. consequent, like they don't, the characters, player characters don't have to do that, but there yeah. will be consequences and the, the web of interactions, especially, especially if you've got a game that is being based out of a particular location, yes. like a game that is based out of Haven, mm -hmm. you know, on the, like you've got this stable of, of recurring NPCs and the relationships that can develop. And there is a lot of 
story potential and story consequence that can come about as a result of how those sliders on the NPCs shift up or down yeah. and what the, the characters do or, or don't with them. And again, it doesn't all need to necessarily re- reside on dice rolls, but you can look mm-hmm. at that as a, oh, well, huh, I'm not sure what might be going next. So let's see who they owe favors to and who might yeah. come up, you know, who might come to them and say, hey, I need help with this thing base, especially if you're if you've got significant NPCs who have their own goals and objectives. Mm-hmm. Well, how can I leverage the favors that I am now owed to maybe get people to do stuff for me? Yeah. Or I'm here to collect. <laughs> yeah. Which is also fun. I remember having a core stable of NPC characters in my Shadowrun campaign because Shadowrun was mostly one city and I could do that because they frequented a lot of the same places. In Barsave, it's it's the size of, you know, two or three states put together. So I found that a little bit harder to do. But I like my guys wandering all over the map. That's just me. Um, Mm -hmm. So most of this interaction and attitude helps with NPC characters that are all name givers. We've got three other categories that you can have interaction tests with. First up being creatures, because uh, beastmasters yes. and cavalrymen are going to come across yep. wild animals at some point. And nine times out of ten, they might default to unfriendly or neutral because or, they or might see you. As, yeah, they are. A they might see you as a threat <laughs> predator on the on the prowl. And and for the most part, much of the interaction test stuff when it comes to wild animals and creatures. Mm -hmm. and how it interacts with um, Animal Bond in particular, but is largely, is based on that same, like, neutral to Mm -hmm. loyal to enemy scale. And that that Animal Bond kind of modifies that the same way for a Beastmaster. Obviously, with with an animal, you're not really going to have, you know, deception or or insight might be appropriate. Like, you could have a a Beastmaster maybe roll. In fact, it might even be worthwhile to have it be a charisma-based half-magic test as an insight on a creature to maybe have some understanding of why it is behaving that way, the way that it is. Because uh, they would have that that knowledge and and understanding. Intimidation can certainly work on um, creatures to maybe get a predator to back off or indicate that you are a, a, a larger threat and that they shouldn't mess with you. But the big part with Beastmasters and Cavalrymen is often getting that if you've got an animal companion, whether a mount or some other animal, Mm -hmm. that you need to use animal bonds to increase that attitude that the animal has towards you to loyal. At that point, you kind of unlock the ability to use all of your other sort of animal companion magical stuff on them Mm -hmm. to make them tougher. But as it describes in the animal bond situation, that, that is still while it's not explicit, is still using favors. Yes. Like the animal is doing stuff for you, but you need to reciprocate that in, in turn by being kind and caring and taking care of them. Yes. Easier for an animal because frequently they just want scritches and food. <laughs> but Nine times out of ten. You know, yeah, That but that putting an animal into dangerous situations, if you're talking about sort of a combat-capable pet or anything like that, mm-hmm. that there is a relationship there that should be reciprocal. That, yeah, it's reciprocal that the animal should not just be a special power that you click on the button and they do the thing for mm-hmm. you that, you know, you're you're building that that web. Yeah, because a neglected or abused animal like a neglected or abused relationship will leave you. Yeah, well, it <laughs> eventually will, so it will turn. And we, we, we need to make this clear because I asked you last night and just to, for the edification of the listeners, this is animal bond, not dominate beast upon right. initial dominate an animal. dominate beast. Yeah, dominate beast is a is a short term magical take control, and you are going to do what I want. That is something that you would not. I I have a hard time thinking of a case where a beastmaster would want to use that on an animal companion. I would think that would be something that would actually damage potentially mm-hmm. the relationship with the the animal, and a lot of that will depend on how intelligent is the animal. Yeah. You know, a, a dog or you know, or, or a horse or some other kind of more intelligent companion mm-hmm. would be more likely to be hurt by that yeah. because they would potentially understand on a basic level kind of what had happened as opposed to, oh, I'm going to take control of, you know, this krill worm mm-hmm. or this beetle that is not particularly bright. Yeah. So we have that versus creatures and 
mostly wild animals. Uh, domesticated animals shouldn't be much of a problem because they're, you know, cats, dogs, horses that have been trained mm-hmm. to be around name yep. givers of some kind. So there shouldn't be too much of a stretch for them to start off with neutral and or friendly to you. To, right. To depending on favor. the animal. Yeah. But this can also be used on spirits. Right. For nethermancers and this is this is one of those things where the longer I've been kind of working on fourth edition and whatnot, the more I would like to see summoning. Like summoning kind of kind of bypasses a lot of that, but when you're dealing with like free roaming spirits, whether elemental or ally spirits that might be yeah. around, and this is something that I kind of want to s- like see more examples of in the source books mm-hmm. as things that are there and that people deal with and have relationships with, because. Yeah. In Shadowrun, to take that example, free spirits are a thing. They're not super common, but they yeah. are. there are plenty of examples of them in various books and, and people dealing with them. And I'd like to see that be something that is present in, in Earthdawn as well, especially where you've got two disciplines that are really focused – well, three that yeah. are now with the Shaman – that are yes. really focused on spirits and the interactions with them. Mm-hmm. And like having all of those interactions revolve around summoning and spells that are variant summoning – kind of limits their their capability and so you can have relationships with spirits and attitudes that they would have towards individual name givers and things like that and that the kinds of favors that a spirit would want you to do like when you've got a spirit and you've summoned it and you're doing the negotiation to to, to work out what totally they want like what you are going to offer in exchange that's you know look to the favor table you know the sort of things that, that they would want to do and that can that can involve it rather than resolving everything with a yeah. die roll um i would like to look at reworking summoning to leverage some aspects of the interaction and social mechanics a little bit more whether that ever actually happens or not yeah. i don't it's know it's percolating but somewhere like to to like to like to integrate and make those relations i think those relationships are exist already under mm-hmm. the surface, but I'd like to perhaps make them a, a bit more yeah. explicit um, as a rule, as a guideline for role-playing and whatnot, as opposed to just, oh, chucking Fair. some So dice. we've got intera- we've got attitudes, interaction tests with creatures and spirits, and we've got one more, horrors. <laughs> horrors, yes. <laughs> now, this is a, generally speaking a bad yeah. idea, <laughs> because horrors generally are not they're going to start off not particularly well disposed towards you and by while you can have interaction tests and whatnot with sentient yeah. horrors with the smart ones with the ones that have personality and goals and drives and they tend to be more powerful and have you know higher charisma steps and social defenses so it's difficult to pull one yep. over on them because there's two different kinds of ho- there's two different levels of horrors we're talking about here so there's the kind you can reason yeah. with maybe and the kind you can't and and yeah, and, <laughs> and the kind you can't and those generally aren't even the level of of beasts and animals in terms of what you can yeah. do with them they're just inimical to inimical to life yeah. itself um and really you just need to get rid of them but it's possible that the that the more intelligent or cunning horrors might be perfectly willing to start off by exchanging yes. favors in order to start to get their hooks into you and beware the know, contract that you sign. You, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it is, it is very possible that you could end up in a bad situation. Highly likely as a result of a horror calling their markers in, um, or anything along yeah, those lines. Yeah, because these are, I can't say eternal, but they are very long-lived, very powerful, very high manipulation level, and yeah. they will f- – they're, they're, <laughs> They don't they're, play fair. Yeah, I mean, they're the, – the, the, the more powerful, the, the named horrors tend to be very, in some respects, similar to dragons in terms of taking yeah. the long view and willing to – sacrifice mm-hmm. pawns uh in order to get their way and if you are interacting and making deals with horrors you need to be aware of the fact that they are likely to turn around and stab you at the back as soon as it becomes yeah handy for them that you know that generally speaking from a from a personality and story perspective they will they will generally be un like unfriendly and and or hostile to you and that is not likely to change, regardless of, of how your magic might work. Um, and just because they are evil, unfriendly, or hostile, 
that just means that they do not have your, they will not consider your needs or desires really in any way when they're deciding what to do. They might be perfectly polite yes. to you as people from the south of the US, you know, <laughs> and in other parts, but the south especially, you know, the, the weaponized politeness Mama, how nice. that, can, that can come about um, mm -hmm. when someone who is, you know, not your friend, but is, you know, yeah. being being polite about it, how, how and, that can... Uh, how that and a turn. horror doesn't have to have a reason to stab you in the back. They want your pain eventually. Right. They can just at the drop of a hat. In fact, it might are. even be better for them to develop a relationship <laughs> with you. And you might think that things are going well and, and oh, you know, maybe he's not so bad before he twists that to, oh, to turn that against you. The betrayal tastes so nice. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, it's it's possible anybody that is yeah. sort of intelligent or, or sentient, it is possible to use attitudes and, and interaction tests and, and favors with uh, just yeah. the uh, applicability and the ability to to pull that off will depend on yes. exactly who it is you're dealing with. And it never hurts to bribe because there actually are some modifiers when you are throwing additional coin at people in, under the bribery skill. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the stuff that you might need to do to successfully bribe a horror well, will probably you know. just make them happier. Because it yeah. means they're getting their hooks into you that much deeper. Mm -hmm. You know, the stories of cares that sacrificed their neighboring village in order to be spared a horror or that those and sorts that of things. Well, I mean, the, the, the despair thought, <laughs> the despair thought plays upon that. Like the idea that they, you know, go up and, and persuade someone to basically sacrifice a member of their own family to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's some nasty stuff that you can do there. <laughs> So that about wraps up our hour-long discussion on interaction tests, and we decided to make this its own podcast, A, because it went so long originally, but B, because this is something that I can't say should be referred to quite often, but every once in a while, you're going to want to refresh yourself on the rules of it's not that hard to, to have an attitude developed for an NPC character to approach the PCs, or when mm -hmm. they approach the NPC character, or the horror, or the spirit, or the creature – because you got four levels there. And really, you've only got five tests to make. Maybe. And not right. even all five. So you got to pick the, the one or two. Yeah, you don't even necessarily need to make tests. You can just use those those attitudes and, and favor levels as a baseline to figure out how easy yeah. or difficult it might be. And you yeah. can certainly, there is nothing wrong with, if you have a well-spoken character that is playing a well-spoken player that is playing a social mm -hmm. character to allow them if they give a what you consider to be a good argument or a persuasive speech or something to allow yeah. that as a bonus or free or free success assuming that they succeed on a role yeah. to try and persuade people to you know npcs to to do stuff yeah you know there's there's a lot of i, I think there is plenty of room for the mechanics and the freeform role-playing to interact and feed back and forth to each other um, in a yeah. way that that enhances it all. And again, looking at that example in the, the GM's guide, mm -hmm. you know, about what's going on and kind of just using the occasional die roll in the sense of what their attitude is and how that's shifting through the scene to guide the, the resolution of things. And, yeah, you know, sometimes is... it's not going to go well and it is going to turn into a bar fight, but <laughs> those are fun too. Those, those can be, those can be fun. And this is a smaller framework. So this is a smaller framework of mechanics for the social interactions than the framework of mechanics for spells mm -hmm. and magic and a smaller framework versus combat. Right. So this isn't too hard to get a grasp on. Yeah. Really. So we, that's why we made this one its own specific standalone episode of a podcast. So if you have any questions for us about what we've discussed here today, or you see a, a, an enhanced value of adding it in where you haven't before, or you really don't see a need for it at all, please let us know. We'd yeah. love to hear about it. You Tell can, us your tales absolutely. about how this went awry in some cases, or worked fantastically in other cases, and how you did swindle a horror and got away with it. Good luck you with can, that. You can um, send those those stories, <laughs> questions, rants, or whatever to edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, absolutely. You can uh, follow us on social media. 
either at EarthDawnG, which is the official podcast Twitter feed. I'm at Metaxas. Dan is on Twitter as well at Voices underscore Voices. I have that right? Nope, just Voice Voice. Oh, Voice Voice. Sorry. No S's. No S's. Um, no S's <laughs> just Voice Voice. Um, yep. There's the official Facet Games Discord. There is the forums. There is the uh, there's Facebook, um, all of which are, are available. And we love interacting with people and hearing the stories and sharing the love and all of that thing. All of that. So if you can't find us, you're not trying hard enough. But until next time, it is time for you to go interact with your own legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>